Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul. I try to, I try to stay on top of things. Uh, one of my things I hate to do is to forget things, is to uh, remember one moment I'm supposed to do something, the next moment to forget it. But sometimes I forget, like all the rest of us. Like the one time I planned to bring my lunch to work. I grabbed the leftovers out of the fridge, stuck it in my lunch bag, grabbed some fruit, a snack, zipped it up, st- stuck it next to the door to make sure I wouldn't forget. I bend down to tie my shoes, grab my work bag, and then walk straight past my lunch. I discovered later on that I forgot my lunch, but no big deal. I just either walk across the street to Wawa to get a hoagie or pop in my car get a $5 fill-up at Taco Bell. And some of you might be thinking, you forgot your lunch on purpose so you could get that Wawa hoagie. I also read this story, funny story, about a guy who forgot something. Uh, This guy was making chicken soup. He had taken some chicken bones and vegetables, simmered it for hours and hours. After it had gotten nice and tasty, I think his mind probably went on autopilot because he thought, i got to get rid of these bones. So he grabs a colander, a strainer, and takes the whole hot, steamy, savory soup and then pours it completely down the drain. And then he's just standing there for like a couple minutes with a pile of chicken bones in his within his hands and wondering, what is the next step? Staring at those chicken bones, he had, you know, he had forgotten he was making chicken soup. When we forget things, we make mistakes. It could be something funny like forgetting your lunch, forgetting the fact that you're making chicken soup. But sometimes it's a little more serious, like if you forget an important birthday, an important date, your anniversary, that's a little more serious. Sometimes your life depends on it. If you don't remember to pay your bills, you could lose your house or your car. If you don't remember to take your medication, your health could be in danger. And if you don't remember to stop at a red light or a train crossing, your life could be in danger. Psalm 103 teaches us that remembering God is essential. Remembering God is essential. You won't be a healthy Christian if you don't remember God, if you don't remember His love. In fact, You won't survive as a Christian. You won't survive if you don't remember. Psalm 103's message today is quite simple. It's remember God's love. Remember God's love. Psalm 103 opens with this call to worship in verse 1. Let's look at verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. David is opening up this psalm with worshiping God. And this isn't some half-hearted worship of a king who's thinking, oh, it's, I'm the king, it's my duty, i got to be a good example, I need to worship God. No, no, it's all that is within me, bless his holy name. So we heard from Tim two weeks ago about sports players who left it all on the field. They gave it their all. And, and this is what King David is doing. He is giving it his all to bless the Lord. All that is within me, bless his holy name. Early on, when King David ascended to the throne, the Ark of the Covenant was brought into Jerusalem, the holy city. And every time the priests carrying the Ark, they walked six steps, King David would sacrifice an ox and a fattened animal. He just couldn't contain himself. He was so excited. In fact, 2 Samuel says that David danced before the Lord with all of his might. He was so excited, so happy at the Lord to worship God that even his wife, despised him for going all out. But that didn't stop him. 
Didn't stop him from blessing the Lord, worshiping God. Let's look at verse 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Tremper Longman writes, the opposite of praise is forgetfulness. The opposite of praise is forgetfulness. It's interesting that the opposite of praise isn't complaining. We might think, oh, it's complaining, it's grumbling, it's getting angry against the Lord. But think about it. What happens long before we start complaining, before we start grumbling? Well, we've forgotten all the benefits of the Lord, all the blessings He's poured out into our lives. Because since the fall, our minds don't function the way they should. They don't. Our memories are like the leaky buckets. Leaky buckets. In one moment, I'm thinking, I'm going to take my lunch to work. The next moment, it's leaked out of my memory. One moment, a guy's making chicken soup. The next moment, he's pouring it down in the drain. But it's no laughing matter to forget because it's remembering God is a, it's, it's a matter of spiritual life and death. The book of Judges is a book of forgetfulness. You guys are going to learn more about the Old Testament, right? Go to the walk through the Bible on September 23rd. Well, before the book of Judges is the book of Joshua. Book of Joshua, Joshua leads the people of Israel into the land of Canaan. They conquer the promised land. God works in an amazing way to keep his promise to Abraham. They conquer the land that God promised to his people. The next book, Judges, they have forgotten what the Lord has done. Book of forgetfulness. There's this, there's this vicious cycle where the people of Israel, the God's people, they forget the Lord. They serve other gods. They get conquered by foreign powers as punishment, and then they cry out to the Lord for help, and then God rescues them. And it, it, the cycle repeats. Forget the Lord. Serve other gods. Get conquered. Get delivered. So it's forget. It's this, it's this unending, vicious cycle through the book of Judges. And it's stunning, or maybe it's not so stunning as we think about it, how fast we can forget the Lord, how, how quickly memory leaks out. Think about Israel. Israel delivered out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God has worked these ten plagues, these ten miracles, signs and wonders. God has struck down the firstborn in Egypt. And God is bringing his people out of Egypt, out of slavery. But this is what we read in Psalm 106, verse 7. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. Israel's at the Red Sea. They haven't even left Egypt, and they've already forgotten, and they did not remember the abundance of God's steadfast love. They rebelled by the Red Sea. And we shouldn't be surprised because God's Word is given to us as this mirror to show us the true conditions of our heart, to show us how quickly we forget. We are those Israelites. Think about the times that my kids don't do what I tell them to do, and I have to tell them over and over again how quickly I can get angry, how quickly I can just forget the ways that the Lord has been patient with me and gracious and kind to me. Or I, or I think of the times that I'm being forced to wait for something longer than I think I should have to wait, and then I just forget how gracious and patient the Lord is to me and how he continually pours out his blessing in my life. And that's why one writer says, ingratitude is satanic. Ingratitude is satanic. It sounds harsh. But there's a lot of truth to it. 
But here's the good news. The, the solution actually isn't hard. We simply need to remind ourselves to, re- to remember God's love. The last year or so, we've been teaching Timothy how to write, how to write his name, how to write ABCs, and we've been doing that through a repetition, repetition. He has to write that T, line down, line over, okay? That, get the T right, line down, line over, and then the I, and then the M. He has to do it over and over and over again, and then he remembers. The letters don't always look pretty, but he's start, starting to get the hang of how to write his name, how to write the ABCs. That's why Moses tells us, tells the people of Israel, take care lest you forget the Lord your God. We have to remind ourselves over and over again. That's why Peter tells the church in 2 Peter chapter 1, 12 through 15, therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are, sta- and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right so long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Peter is reminding the church, even though they know these things, he's reminding them of the truths, the great truths of their salvation that they have in Jesus Christ. All the great things that God has done for them in Jesus Christ. He is stirring them up by way of reminder so that they can recall it later on. And David in this psalm is stirring us up by way of reminder. He is telling us, forget not all his benefits. And we need that because our memories are leaky buckets and because the opposite of praise is forgetfulness. So, so David goes right into listing those benefits, reminding himself, stirring himself up by way of reminder. Let's look at verses 3 through 5. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. David is giving these blessings. He's painting this panorama, this picture of life as it was meant to be lived. And he goes brushstroke after brushstroke, blessing after blessing. And let's look at them. He, he talks about how God is the one who forgives. And this is foundational because you don't have this. It doesn't really matter if you have all the other blessings. You can be the healthiest person and the wealthiest person on earth, but if you die in your sins, you die under God's wrath and judgment and suffer eternally under God's wrath, then it doesn't matter if you have all this money. We're going to unpack that a bit more later. God is the one who heals. By his wounds we are healed. Jesus Christ took on our illnesses and diseases. And we have to be careful here because uh, forgiveness and healing are often connected, but not always. God doesn't always heal every single disease in this lifetime. Derek Kidner writes, if relationship with God is paramount, this makes good sense, for sin destroys it while suffering may deepen it. We know that one day God will put away every disease, every illness, every bodily weakness, even death itself, but in this life we often have to live with different diseases and different sufferings. God is the one who redeems our life from the pit. When you have been forgiven, God redeems your life, your, your, your soul, out of the pit of death. God is the one who crowns you with steadfast love. God is the one who satisfies us with good. 
because every good gift and every perfect gift comes from our Father, our perfect Heavenly Father. So think for a moment about just some things you've enjoyed this past summer. Think of the feeling of warm sand between your toes. Maybe that's not something you enjoy because you're not a beach person. Well, think about having taken a vacation uh, into the mountains with those you love. Or think about this past summer devouring your favorite food or your dessert. My favorite dessert at the moment is uh, Beeler's Donuts from Reading Terminal Market. If you've never had one, you've got to have one. <laughs> my, wife, my wife thinks that a donut's just a donut. But there are donuts, and then there are Beeler's Donuts. And these are so popular that you, you've got the, the line for it snakes around the counter. And you have to wait, and as you wait, you watch them fry these donuts. You watch them pull it out of the fryers, and they take some of these donuts, they, they top them with chocolate, these other ones, they fill them with cream or, or fruit. And the, last time I went, I, I got a blueberry fritter, and it was amazing. I, I took a bite, and it was still warm. You got to eat them when they're warm. And it's crispy on the outside, and yet warm and melt in the mouth moist on the inside. And it was, it was glorious. It was this little taste of heaven. And as I was enjoying, as I was enjoying this, this, this Beeler's Donut, Psalm 103 reminds us that it is God who satisfies us with good. So everything that you enjoy is from the hand of our good God, our generous God. So David goes rapid fire through all these different blessings, all these benefits that he he reminds us not to forget. Forgiveness, healing, redemption, crowning, satisfaction. But then in verse 6 through 10, he, he broadens this panorama. And he goes beyond individual worship to corporate worship. Look at verse 6 through 7. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. David recalls the redemption story of of God's people, that that Israel was once enslaved by Egypt, but then God has rescued them out of it. And that leads us right into the meat of Psalm 103, which is remembering God's love. And I think it's also helpful here just for us to remember as we look at the events in our country the last two weeks that God is a God of justice, that we can take comfort in knowing that He is working His righteous purposes for His glory, even if things seem confusing, even when oppression and racism seem to be on display in such a disturbing way. We can take comfort in knowing that nothing is hidden from the eyes of our God and that one day every wrong will be righted, every sin will be taken into account. Verses 8 and 9, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. Church, knowing history is essential for our survival. You have to know where you've been, and you have to know where you'll end up. Otherwise, you'll get lost in the middle. Does anyone know where verses 8 and 9 are from? Anyone? What book of the Bible, what chapter? This is history. David is quoting history. We have to know history. Does anyone know it? Feel free to shout it out. Someone said Exodus. It's from Exodus chapter 34, right after the golden calf incident. You know the story. Yahweh has taken Israel out of Egypt, but not only that, Yahweh has taken Israel to be his bride. So 
Israel, the bride of Yahweh, and then Yahweh, her husband. And then Moses goes up uh, on Mount Sinai for 40 days to, to receive the Ten Commandments so God's people will know how to live as a faithful wife. But they get impatient. They get impatient. And, and Moses is taking too long, so they do the unthinkable, which is commit adultery, spiritual adultery. And they, they form this golden calf, and they start worshiping that instead of God. They worship that instead of Yahweh. And they backstab the God who saved them. And God is about to destroy them when Moses pleads for mercy. Let's read this in, uh, from Exodus 34, 6 through 9. The Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, O Lord, please let the Lord go in in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin." God hears the prayer of Moses and forgives the iniquity and sin of his people. Sadly, they don't learn. Once again, when they're at the edge of the promised land, about to enter the land that God promised to give them, they refuse. They don't trust him. And again and again, they put God to the test. They they commit adultery with other gods. They rebel against God. They refuse to obey him. One of the books my kids enjoy reading is this book called Bear Wants More. It's a little children's book. This bear wakes up from winter hibernation. He hasn't eaten for a couple months, so he's hungry. Bear wanders out of his cave. He goes out to his front lawn. He eats all the grass on his lawn. Okay? But bear wants more. So his friend the mouse takes him over to the strawberry patch. They eat all the berries, but bear wants more. And on and on. He goes to a clover patch. They eat fish. He eat honey cakes. But every time, bear wants more. Psalm 78, 17. Yet they, Israel, sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. Just like that bear, Israel can't seem to help herself. She has this ravenous, almost insatiable appetite for sin. And it is in that context, that context of adultery, rebellion, refusal to obey and submit to their God, the God who saved them, that we read verses 10 through 12. This is who God is. Look at verse 10 through 12. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Church, I don't know where you guys are coming from. Uh, I don't know what sins you carry, what guilt you carry, what shame you might carry. Church, you need to know that your sin is never as great as God's great, that that God's grace is greater, infinitely greater than your sin. He doesn't deal with us according to our sin. He doesn't repay us according to our iniquities because as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. Micah 7, 18 through 19 says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. 
He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. But the question is, how? How can God cast all our sins into the depths of the sea? As far as the east is from the west, how can he remove our transgressions from us? How can he remove the stain of sin on our soul without becoming stained himself? Because forgiveness is a problem for God. Proverbs 17.15 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So if God looked at us and he, he justified the wicked, he looked at us with all of our sin and said, you know what, that's okay. I'm going to just let that go. Well, God would be a, an abomination to himself. If a, if a judge simply looked at murder and said, well, it's okay, no big deal, I'm going to be merciful, I'm going to let you go, he would be a wicked judge. And, and God, because he's good, He's holy. He's just. He simply can't let you or I go. Justice has to be carried out by a holy God. God is described in the Bible as a, as a consuming fire, a, a God who has anger towards sin, an anger that is like a fire that has to be unleashed and spent. There are few things more disgusting than vomit. We were a couple years back, we were visiting our family, and we were, we were at a, a Mediterranean buffet with some in-laws, and we were just enjoying some great Mediterranean food. We were enjoying hummus and baba ganoush and pita and gyro. Uh, Hudson loves eating restaurant food, you know, and normally he'd be shoveling food down, but this time, I mean, he was about one or two at the time, but he wasn't eating. So we thought, well, let's just help him out. I mean, this is really good food, and he should be enjoying it. So, so Hudson, here's some, here's some uh, hummus here, and we just shove it into his mouth. Uh, Hudson, here's some uh, euro meat. We just shove it into his mouth, and on and on. At, at some point, though, we noticed something wasn't quite right, and he began throwing up. He just began throwing up. I'll spare you the gory details, but the food that we had forced down him was being forced back out. Hudson's body was rejecting this food. And that's how God sees sin. That's how God sees lying and stealing and lust and idolatry and, and pornography and hatred and racism. It's disgusting. It's repulsive. He has to get rid of it. And not only does God hate sin, he hates sinners. Psalm 5, five says, God hates all evildoers. That's how he views sin. The answer to our problem the answer to God's problem, how can God forgive, is substitutionary atonement. And that's a, that's a fancy theological term, but it's actually very simple. It, only, it just means that God provides a sin-bearing substitute. Instead of unleashing His anger, His wrath, His judgment against sin on us, it's directed to somebody else. Someone or something else is destroyed. Someone or something else stands in our place and receives the guilty sentence. In the Old Testament, an animal was sacrificed. An animal had to die to put away sin. But sins could never be put away by animal sacrifices. In fact, they were just a reminder of sin. They were repeated day after day, year after year. However, they did point to the ultimate sacrifice, from the ultimate high priest who would offer up himself, who would lay down his life once for all, Jesus Christ. Christ, 
redeemed us from the curse of the law by being made a curse for us. So that means all the wrath and anger and fury of God against us because of our sin was unloaded on Jesus Christ instead of us. So Jesus on the cross, as he was dying, he could say, it is finished. Christ paid it all by his perfect life, by his righteousness, by his body that was broken on the cross, by the blood that was shed on that cross, he paid it all. He paid for our sins and put it away forever. It's by grace that we are saved through faith, not of ourselves so that no one can boast. It is a gift of God. William Temple writes, the only thing I contribute to my redemption is the sin from which I need to be redeemed. So the only thing we bring to the table in this act of redemption is the sin from which I need to be redeemed. We don't bring our righteousness. We don't bring our good works. All we bring is the filth, the vomit of our own sin, the sin that deserves God's burning anger against us. That's what we bring to the table, and God takes it away in Jesus Christ. In a beautiful and marvelous way, John Calvin writes, God loved us even when he hated us. God loved us even when he hated us. While we were yet sinners, while we were yet objects of his anger and wrath, Christ died for us. God loved us and sent his only son to die in our place. That means as we think about this redemption, as we think about this substitution that occurred, words words simply fail us. So we look at the poetic images that Psalm 103 gives us. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love. As the father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion. And his steadfast love is from everlasting to everlasting. And as we meditate, as we remember God's love, we see that God's love for for unworthy sinners is is unique. It's, It's special. It's unlike anything else in all creation. Everything else in all creation, you look around you, it fades, it fails, it withers, it dies, but not God's love. Look at verse 15 through 17. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him, and His righteousness to children's children. Grass withers. Flowers bloom and then are blown away. Man dies. Notice how delicate this flower is. It's not not a a gust of wind, not, not a hurricane, not a tornado that uproots this flower. It's simply the wind passes over it. Wind passes over and it is gone. Our life is like that delicate flower. Think about it. One blood clot, one car accident, one drug overdose, and our life instantly comes to an end. My father-in-law enjoys gardening. Uh, he, He loves planting fruits, vegetables, flowers. He lives in Houston, Texas, where it's warm and humid year-round, where everything grows. The high temperature in February in Houston is something like 67 degrees. So while 
we're here shoveling out, out of, you know, after that last snowstorm. They're down there, like, enjoying the outdoors, gardening. It's humid. And so, so years ago, uh, Teresa and I were visiting her parents, and, and my father-in-law was particularly excited about this plant that he was cultivating. This plant is called the Queen of the Night, and it has this flower that blooms for a night, but only for a night. Should be a picture there showing a, a time-lapse photo of, of, of the flower that just opens up. So over the, over, over the course of that evening that we were there in Houston, uh, for, the, for a couple hours, the flower opened up its bloom, and you could see these gorgeous white petals. But as fast as that flower bloomed, it faded. Within that night, it would just fade and wither away. And that's what it looks like. Such beauty, and yet such shortness. Mankind, our human existence, is like that queen of the night. We bloom on earth, but then shrivel away and are forgotten. We bloom, but we don't remain. But praise God that His love is not like that at all. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. It's, it's, a, it's a love that doesn't fade or shrivel or weaken or disappear. It, it's a love that remains because God Himself remains. So you might be here this afternoon, um, might be struggling, feeling trapped in your singleness. Or you might have gone through a divorce in your life, or maybe you're a widow. God wants you to look at the cross of Jesus Christ, to see, to be reminded that His steadfast love is from everlasting to everlasting, that He knows you intimately, that He knows you thoroughly. He, he understands your, your fears, your weaknesses, how you feel vulnerable, and He moves towards you with, with His love and His compassion. He wants you to, to, to see once again in a fresh way that Jesus Christ, His own Son, was cut off and rejected that you wouldn't have to be. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great, so great is His steadfast love towards you. You might be discouraged in life, just feeling like you've experienced setback after setback, and life feels to you like dead end after dead end. I believe God wants you to look to the cross to see the compassion of your heavenly Father. As you, as you run this race, as you you struggle to put one foot ahead of the other. God wants you to know that, that He sees, the Father sees, the Father knows, and He's cheering you on, and He's carrying you. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arm. He is bearing you up and carrying you forward. There might be someone here who's been battling sin and temptation, and, and you feel defeated. You feel like sin has gotten the upper hand yet again. Look to the cross and, and be reminded, again, that, that as far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed your transgressions from you. Your sins are gone. They're cast into the depths of the sea. He is merciful towards your iniquities and will remember your sins no more. And not only that, brothers and sisters, He's given you the Holy Spirit who now indwells within you. You have the power to say no to temptation. He's given you the church fellow brothers and sisters with whom you can have fellowship and care and accountability so that by His grace you will overcome next time. But maybe some of you are coming at this this afternoon from, from a very different place. Maybe you're coming at it from an opposite place. Maybe you're the kind of person who's self-reliant or you've been told or that 
you just need to be self-confident. You may not feel that your sin is that bad or that you don't feel your need for him at this moment. Well, you need to be reminded that your sin put Christ there. Your sin put Christ on the cross. John Stott writes, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, leading us to faith and worship, we have to see it as something done by us, leading to faith, leading us to repentance. Maybe this afternoon you're here, but you've never placed your faith in Christ. Maybe you're a youth and you've spent your whole life growing up in church, or you're an adult and you come to church because it's the thing you're supposed to do, or you're a visitor wondering what this following Jesus thing is all about, or you're religious and you're hoping one day, hopefully, hopefully, your good works will be enough to get you into heaven. God is welcoming all, all of us, all of you to enter into his salvation through Christ alone. He's ready. He's ready to open up his arms to forgive and to heal and redeem. Simply turn from your sin. Turn from living your own way and place your trust in Christ alone to save you. Give up. Give up your sin. Give up living your own way. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. As we begin to wrap things up here, what what does it mean for us to remember His love, remember God's love? How do we live that out? Psalm 103 gives us some, some great ways, some real practical ways for us to walk that out in our own lives. And we remember God's love when we fear Him, and we remember God's love when we praise Him. So I want to just take a moment to go through these practical things that Psalm 103 lays out for us. First one is to fear God. But you might be wondering, well, how is fear compatible with love? That those, those two things seem like opposites. Well, as you study God's Word, there's, as you study God's Word, you, you'll begin to see that there's a sense where God's love is both unconditional and conditional. What do I mean by that? Well, God's love is unconditional. We did nothing to earn it, nothing to deserve God's favor. Jesus paid it all. While we were yet enemies of God, Christ died for us. It's unconditional. But there's a sense where God's love is also conditional. Look at verse 11. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And his love is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. But what does this fear mean? When we think of fear, we think of dread. And one, one kind of fear is this fear of God that you experience as a guilty sinner, as one like, what am I going to do about my sin? And we, we dread God. That's not the fear that Psalm 103 is talking about. The other kind of fear is the fear you experience uh, when you know that God is your Father and, and you're His beloved Son. And you can't wait to see your Heavenly Father. That's the kind of love that Psalm 103 lays out for us here. With you, with, with God, there's forgiveness that He may be feared. My five-year-old Timothy is an early riser. He often gets up before anybody else does and forces daddy to wake up as well. And we often eat breakfast together while the rest of the family is asleep. And we eat oatmeal. 
And this isn't just any old oatmeal. This is oatmeal with all sorts of like stuff added onto it, peanut butter and raisins and apples and coconut. It's this amazing oatmeal that uh, sometimes our kids look at what we're having for dinner and they ask if they could have oatmeal instead of whatever we're having. But anyways, as I'm preparing this oatmeal for breakfast, uh, I give Timothy some chores to do because I want him to learn responsibilities. I want him to learn that you know, food doesn't just fall out of the sky. You got to work for it, that kind of thing. So I tell him, Timothy, you need to wash your hands, and then you need to help Daddy get breakfast ready. He doesn't always do it, but often he, he he's obeys with joy. He obeys instantly and completely and cheerfully. He, he grabs placemats and puts them on the table. He grabs the peanut butter out of the fridge. He grabs the cinnamon. But not only does he do what I tell him to do, he offers to do more. He wants to help Daddy put the sprinkle the cinnamon on the on the oatmeal and he, timothy obeys me not because he dreads me or he's afraid of me he obeys me because he respects me as his father he wants to honor me and in a much deeper and all-encompassing way that's our posture that we have towards our heavenly father when we fear god we we give him the respect and honor and obedience that he deserves when we fear God, we take Him seriously. And one very practical way to do that is just making every effort to, to be here at 4 p.m. So be making every effort. Think about it. If you, if you have a, a, a meeting with your CEO Monday afternoon at 4 p.m., you don't stroll in 15 minutes late. You show up early to make sure you can show up on time. And sometimes it's simply not possible to be here on time, but, you know, we should aim that that would be the exception rather than the rule because because we we love God. We want to take Him seriously. So it might seem strange that fear and love are connected, but when we fear God, we're actually remembering His love. We're remembering who He is, what He's done, and we're responding to His love with our respect and honor and obedience that He deserves. And that fear means submitting to our king. Look at verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. That means obeying him, because his steadfast love is from everlasting to everlasting to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. And not only do we want to just know God and know His commandments? We, want, we, we can't bear the thought of disobeying Him. And that's what it means to, to, to fear God and to respond in love to the love that God has first shown us. That means when God commands us to love Him with all of our heart, to love our neighbor as ourselves, that means we, we, we love as God loved. We serve as Christ served. We speak as Christ spoke. Because as one commentator puts it, unless we be made like Christ, we shall never be with Christ. we got to remember God's love. we got to respond to that love. So we remember God's love when we fear God. But we also remember God's love when we praise Him. And the angels join in on the action. Look at verses 20 and 21. Bless the Lord, all you His angels, you mighty ones who do His word, obeying the voice of His word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. The angels have never experienced the sacrificial love of God because it's Christ. Christ never died for the angels. 
It's not the angels that he helps, according to Hebrews chapter 2. It's offspring of Abraham, human beings like you and me. And if the angels have reasons to worship, how much more do the redeemed people of God, those for whom Christ have died, how much more do we have reasons to praise and honor him? And at the end of the ages, this is what we'll be doing. We'll be remembering and rejoicing and praising God, the God of love. Listen as I read from Revelation chapter 5. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and, throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. All heavenly creatures, even human beings, and all creation will be worshiping God, worshiping Christ forever and ever. But we don't wait till then. We get to do that now. Because all creation is headed towards this unending praise and adoration of God. We get to do that now. We can and should do that now. Verse 22, bless the Lord all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Psalm 103 ends where it begins. It's this praise sandwich. Praise, remembrance, praise. And worship is one of the most powerful ways that God has given to us for us to remember His love. Remember His love. Because as you're singing the truth of who God is, what God has done for you, His amazing and infinite, abundant love, when you sing that truth, it's medication for our forgetful souls. It fills our minds and strengthens our heart and keeps that bucket from leaking out. It means that as us as the New Testament church, we fill our hearts and minds with, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making music to the Lord with all of our heart. I can't tell you how many times that I'm just at home or I'm at work, I'm discouraged, I'm tired, and simply taking a moment to sing truth just makes all the difference in the world. It changes my perspective, strengthens my heart, strengthens my mind. Just singing a song like, in Christ alone, either out loud or in my heart, or, or all I have is Christ, makes all the difference in the world. Psalm 103, what a precious psalm, calls us to remember God's love. Don't walk out of your church in just a few minutes and forget God's love. Take the time, remember, remind yourself. And, and you do that by just, you know, when you fear God, when you live in the fear of God, when you respond with that love and respect and adoration, you remember His love. And when you take the time to worship and praise Him, bless the Lord, O oh my soul, you will remember God's love. You will remember God's love. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we bless You. We praise You. We honor You. God, it's so easy for us to forget. So quickly does memory leak out. So we pray for Your help this week. Pray for your help that you would remind us of your truth, remind us of how great your love is. Lord, no matter what your people, no matter what we're going through, I pray that your love would carry us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.